Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where all our book club meetings and bonus events are made available for listeners to enjoy. On this episode, we discuss The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture by Dr. Daryl Ray. The God Virus uses the analogy of religion as a virus to explain the psychology behind it. Dr. Daryl Ray uses his background in psychology and his knowledge of religion to explain the hold that religion has on our culture. The book is a lot of fun to read, and the author does a wonderful job of educating us while never losing focus of his clever yet appropriate analogy. Dr. Ray joins us for the second half of the meeting, and as always, it's an absolute pleasure to have him talk to the group. We know you'll think so, too. This Good Book Club meeting was originally held on Sunday, January 14th, 2024. Welcome, everybody, to the January edition of The Good Book Club. It is January 14th. It's very snowy where I am. I hope a lot of you have better weather than I do because it's very cold out. Um, We always start our The Good Book Club episodes by reading our mission statement, and I have asked Landon if he would like to read that statement today for us. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, thank you, Landon. That is our mission statement and everything we do, we try to follow that with that as our guide. So we'll talk very briefly about some upcoming events we have with the book club and then we'll jump right in. Um, Uncultured. This is a book by Daniela Mestianic Young about escaping the children of God cult. I helped John DeLynn run his Mormon Stories book club and we are going to be having her on, I believe, in the middle of February. So if you want to grab a copy of this and get reading, you can participate um, in that live chat when we have that podcast. And we'll we'll have a date for that later. But um, I've talked to some people that have read this and I'm still trying to get started on it, but apparently really good and really disturbing. So (laughs) it's a good one. Um, Another book... Coming up, this has been on our radar for a while. I'm grabbing it right here. Chosen Path um, by D. Michael Quinn. This is actually his memoir found on his computer after he had passed away. And we are going to be talking again on the Mormon Stories Book Club with his son, Moshe, and Barbara Jones Brown, who is the uh, the CEO of Signature Book, who put this book out. This is going to be on Friday, February 2nd at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Mormonish Podcast also has an episode with Moshe Quinn and Barbara. So if you want to kind of brush up on the topic, you can catch that first. You can go to Mormonish Podcast on YouTube, and then you can join in the live chat on February 2nd. So this is a really good book. I'm telling you, try to find it. Okay, what else do we have? Oh, this is a really interesting book that's coming out. It is not available yet. It will be available, I believe, on February 16th, I think is the date. It is called The Devil Sat on My Bed. And it's by someone who was raised in Utah. She is not LDS, and she's a religious anthropologist. And she wrote a book about all those stories that we all grew up with, right? Everybody had an encounter. Everybody had a dead grandma visit. Everybody had an experience. And it's a really interesting book. We just interviewed her on Mormonish Podcast, and we'll let you guys know when that comes out. Um, But when when this is available in February, everybody grab a copy because it's really interesting and we probably will have her try to come even and talk to book club i think maybe because it's it's a really interesting topic we can all relate to if we were raised lds for sure 
Um, the other book on our radar, Letting Go. Again, we are probably going to have Lisa come talk to us, and we're also interviewing her over on Mormonish Podcast. This is a really good good book. Um, not too long, doesn't take too long to get through. Um, How a Family Crisis Brought Clarity and Authenticity as This Family Stepped Away from Mormonism. So really good book. Grab that one too. Lisa's on with us today. So. Oh, is she? I didn't even see that. Lisa, hello. Yes, we are going to be interviewing on Mormonish and we are going to have you talk to the book club. So everybody say hi to Lisa. That's excellent. Um, we want to make everybody aware that there is a Thrive event. This is the big one of the year. This is down in St. George, March 1st through the 3rd, which is a Friday through Sunday. Lots of really good speakers. It's still in process. There's going to be more speakers added, but it's basically you stay down there and you just hang out and have a really interesting time, you know, communing with everybody and hearing amazing speakers and going out to dinner. And it's really fun. So you can register at thrivebeyondreligion.com for this coming up in March. Um, discussion leader needed. We had everything filled up and then our discussion leader for August um, had some family situation come up and isn't going to be able to lead the book. So if anybody is interested, Heaven on Earth by Michael Shermer. And I think we're going to try to get Michael to come on. I've interviewed him a couple of times, so I think he'll do it for me. I hope, crossing my fingers. Uh, but we're looking for somebody who might like to be the discussion leader. For anybody that's new to the book club, that just means you read the book and you kind of guide the discussion. It can be as complicated as making a whole slideshow, or it can be as easy as just saying, What'd y'all think? <laughs> and then we start talking. So looks like David just volunteered. <laughs> what what? David Morris just volunteered. Oh, well, the, see, I can't see anybody. I can only see myself, but, you know, because I'm so vain. No, because I'm on speaker view. So really, if David volunteered, there you go. We've got it. <laughs> Take a note, Melissa. <laughs> That's funny. Thank you, David. Perfect. All right. Our next book, just in time for Valentine's Day, Sex at Dawn. This is going to be excellent. And our discussion leader is Shauna. And at the end of our presentation today, she's going to tell us a little more about this book that we're going to read for February. So highly recommended by several people and we all voted for it. So this is going to be good. All right. Does that take us to the end? I think it does of all of our announcements. So now we are going to dive in to our book that we're talking about this. How many books did I hold up? One, two, three, four, five, six. My goodness. I'm just buried in books here. Well, today's discussion is on the God virus, how religion infects our lives and culture by the amazing Dr. Daryl Ray. And now he is actually at noon going to be joining us. I hope I sent him the link and he said he was in. So I hope it's okay. I know he watches football a lot on Sunday. So I'm hoping he can fit us in. But he said yesterday. So he should. Oh, be good. his yeah. team is. Do they win or lose? I so think we can yeah. gauge his mood. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Dr. Ray, just kind of a standard policy. And I understand this because he presents in so many places where people just, you know, raise their hand. They haven't read his material. They have no idea what he's about. And they ask him all these questions. And he's like, that's counterproductive. You know, let's talk about what we're talking about. So he has just asked that today, if you haven't read the book, just be a listener. If you have read the book, go ahead and ask any questions that you want. And he's just a wonderful human being. And we are really excited to have him come on. So um, I am actually the discussion leader for this book, believe it or not. So yes, I get to keep talking. And I do have some slides that we've set up. Now, we first ran into Dr. Ray um, when we read two years ago, I think it was two years ago, Sex and God, 
how religion distorts sexuality. And for those of you that were here then at that time, it was such a good book. We just found it absolutely fascinating. And we reached out to Dr. Ray and we got his take on it. And we had him come talk to us about it. And we had never read his other book, The God Virus. We'd kind of heard parts of it, read parts of it, but we'd never sat down and, and read it completely. So I was really happy that we all voted and decided to read this book this time because I found this, uh, I love to use the word revelatory, right? I found this whole concept just so incredible. And, and once I understand the concept, I really can't look at religion in, in any other way now. When anybody says something to me, like a family member, oh, we're going to the baptism today. I'm like, mm -hmm, yep, that's the virus. That's where they're going to indoctrinate you. And they're going through a ritual to bind you. But, you know, my mind just goes there. So I guess I think what we'll do is just, um, since we have a limited time before Dr. Ray shows up, we're just going to get as far as we can go, um, going through the chapters and a, kind of a question about each concept in each chapter. So, of course, the first chapter in the book um, was called Religion as a Virus. And because I just barely discovered um, art through AI, I put into AI the God virus. That's all I wrote. And all these pictures, it was so interesting. At first, it started creating just things that looked like a virus. And then it started adding a more human element to it as it was kind of figuring it out. So I'm kind of proud of the artwork. I think it's really fun. I hope you guys enjoy that as we go through the slides. But so the first chapter, religion as a virus. And <clears throat> I guess my first question is, what are your actual overall thoughts on this analogy as it stands? Is it something that works? Or is it something that you thought, oh, that's that's a complete reach. That's that's a complete stretch. Uh, what does anybody think about that? <clears throat> I know exactly. Oh, yes, Bruce. Well, yeah. You know, it, it's like the concept our our genes make us so that we can propagate more genes. And us really don't matter it's the genes propagating themselves. And I believe the same thing is with the virus. It's interested in propagating itself and its well-being. My well-being, it doesn't care about. And as I was listening to the book, I'm going like, oh yeah, this is this is looking towards its, its self-interest, like, amassing power and money and control and stuff. So yeah, I thought that seemed to be a, a pretty good uh, analogy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like I said, I can't see it any other way at this point. Now, everything the church does, every article, every article that comes out, I'm like, mm-hmm, that's, to, that's to, for this to achieve this end, or that's for this purpose. So Landon, what did you think? I, I absolutely love this book. I love the analogy. To me, specifically, when he made the analogy to the virus that uh, goes into the rat, uh, the rat's brain, because I, I so often sit there and think, how, how did this happen? How did I allow, uh, how did I not apply critical thinking to all of these things that when I apply everywhere else in my life? And then when he, he gave that example of the rat where the virus goes into the rat's brain, and the rat, uh, instead of being repelled by the pheromones of a cat, it's actually attracted to the pheromones of a cat, uh, making it go and get eaten by the cat, in which case the virus then uh, reproduces in the cat's gut, uh, and then the cat poops it out and the mice get in it and they get infected again. But it, it, it was amazing because in every other aspect, that rat, um, that rat 
was a rat. It, it acted like a rat in every other case, except for when it came to, to a cat, once it was infected with a virus. I think religion is so much that way that you were infected and we things that we would question in our regular life, we now stop questioning once we become infected with that God virus. And I thought, wow, that really explains uh, how that can happen, how we can just push off critical thinking, we can push off uh, moral actions. Uh, we, we just shut a certain part of our brain when it becomes infected with the God virus. So that, that was my favorite part of, of uh, that analogy was it, it helped me understand that. Yeah, I agree. It does help you understand other people. I always talk about my dad, who's, you know, a PhD level scientist who believes the earth, you know, creationism. That's exactly it. Every other part of his brain, he is a PhD level science. When it comes to that, he's not. And it also helped me understand um, how people could do things like, you know, shun a child who isn't taking the path that you're taking, things like that. You know, it really just put it in perspective. Yvonne. Okay, I'm unmuted, I think. You are. You did so, it. <laughs> first of all, I have to say that after leaving Mormonism, I I am basically an atheist, so I'm not advocating for that. And I read the whole book, and I agree totally that it is a strikingly good analogy, but every time I would come to another part of it, it, it also is such a charged and offensive analogy, I think, to people who still believe in God because, uh, but that's neither heard of it. It's a very valuable book to read. But the interesting thing I wanted to say is um, in is chapter nine, it's on page 182. He does talk and I, about teaching or helping um, interacting with people who have the virus with compassion and, um, and how to do it. He actually has a little four principles of interaction and I'm not going to read them but um, so the, the thing that struck me immediately was um, we have a cup, we have set, we have children who are bipolar and who have mental problems and the principles are the exact same things that, and, and it's a, an acronym, LEAP is an acronym, listen, uh, empathize, agree, and partner. And so you notice that and you know, those are almost the same principles that he has that that when you're interacting, listen and empathize with her. He says that and agree as far as you can. You know what I mean? But he also says you can't. Anyway, he has techniques. When I when I say he, I'm talking about the author of the book that, and his name is Xavier Am Amador or something like that. He's a, he's a PhD. Anyway, but that was the funny thing is that it is kind of like a, it makes you kind of mentally ill, doesn't it? The God virus when it get, but it is still, I have to just say in defense, in defense, I would never give this book to someone, you know, I, I actually had to hide it from my son because it was triggering to him to the God virus. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I see that exactly because it comes across as extremely like patronizing or condescending to, to, but to me, it was helpful to think of someone being infected because then you do naturally take those steps that you just outlined. You know, they're not trying to be offensive. They're not trying to hurt us. They are infected. And I have to laugh because I know this title, this is probably one of the most provocative titles we've had this year. And as you probably, most of you know, I have TBM children and sometimes they'll ask me what I'm doing. Like, so what's your book club doing this month, mom? You know, and I always try to tell them, oh, we're reading science, philosophy. And when they ask me that, I go, oh, we're reading oh, the God virus, how religion affects us. You know, it was just embarrassing because yes, this book definitely, even the title says, 
we're gunning for religion right now. We're going to talk about you guys. So that was pretty funny. Melissa. You're Oops. muted. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping I'm in the right chapter on this, but um, the thing that I really loved about considering it as a virus was, um, oh, I hope this is the right chapter, was the inoculation aspect of it. Because when I lost my belief in the LDS religion, and I kind of sat there and looked around and said, okay, well, now what? Which which church is the church? And I'm like, it's none of them. Yeah. Like I was inoculated. I was told my whole life, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And I, I think they say in the book, you know, there's some times where there's um, a little bit of crossover where people can convert, but it's the exception, not the rule that people can be converted to another religion. Because once you're inoculated, the chance of getting um, a similar virus is a lot lower. And I was just like, boom, like that makes so much more sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I love the steps that we'll probably talk about later where they talk about how you actually can help somebody become inoculated, which is very valuable. David. I think for me, what came over was the, the contagion with any virus as it spreads. And all I could think of when I was reading and listening to it, what have I done to my family? You know, they have, they've all, you know, they're no longer TBM. And in some ways we followed them. But the legacy then of this ongoing contagion is though they no longer associate with the church, they still have those built-in things that we drilled into them at their early years. Um, and it's it's not a matter of just deconstructing us, it's deconstructing them, but realizing we have been the, the method of delivery. You know, we talk about the rats and the poop and everything like that. And I've never really realized that, yes, while we were spouting something that this was our mountain, it wasn't their mountain, but we made it their mountain. So I don't know if if I'm saying I'm you know I'm suffering you know from from the lifelong guilt as a parent, as probably every parent will suffer. But you then realise that the actions that we took, like a virus, has then passed down, you know, and they're not quite inoculated yet, and probably neither am I. No, but you were just doing what uh, the virus was having you do. You know, you caught yep. the virus and you did what you were supposed to do and then you passed it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about that promotion. So, but I know I had the same thought. What what have I done and, and what can I do now? That was another part of it. And in some cases, not much. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce. Yeah, I did, that just brings up uh, your mission experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I look back now going like, oh, I kind of wish I'd gone on a mission where you didn't baptize anybody. But in the 70s, I was in Chile and we baptized tons. And, you know, most of the people um, went inactive, evidenced by them closing down. It was either 20 or 40 stakes a few years ago in Chile because of low attendance. But I do know the first family I baptized, he became a bishop. They flew up and I sat outside the Provo temple while they were married in the temple within a year of my mission because I, I stopped going to church. And we've had very little contact. Maybe last contact was 20 years ago, but I know that he lives in Provo. His kids went to BYU, um, you know, and this was a very nice you know, non-Mormon family in an upscale neighborhood in, in Chile that uh, I was part of introducing the virus. I have no idea because I haven't kept in touch with them 
how far the virus I'm hoping that the kids and, and stuff have, have left, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. It is all you can really think is that I almost had no control over what I was doing because I was infected too. So um, let's jump on to our next chapter. So in the second chapter of the book, uh, which is called How Religions Survive and Dominate, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. What did we do <laughs> as a person infected with the virus to promote the virus? Um, how do religions um, propagate and perpetuate themselves? And I thought the strategies that he outlined, it was so obvious. It was what all of us were doing, but we never realized that it was doing what we were doing. And it reminds me of um, Landon and Tom and I visited. Steve Pinecker um, last month or in November, and we stopped at the Scientology Center in Clearwater. And we met this lovely young woman who was part of the Sea Org, and she was kind of leading the tour, showing us around. And one of us said to her, were you raised in Scientology? And she said, well, no, that's not how it works at all. She kind of laughed. She goes, no, both my parents were Scientologists, and I watched what they did, and they showed me what to do, and they taught me and talked to me. But no, I wasn't raised in it. <laughs> you know, you were raised in it. That's exactly what the virus does. That's exactly how it works. So did anyone have any thoughts on, you know, vectors and, and the different ways that the virus is promoted just naturally in living our everyday lives? Less, yes, Lynette. Well, one of the things that uh, he talked about in the book was that you start while they're young. And we certainly do that in the Mormon church, right? Yep. You know, we baptize by the time they're eight in it and they go to a primary when they're what three and they learn all the songs and they learn all the stories. And so it becomes a part of part of their nature. And then, you know, we're expected to go on missions and spread, spread the virus some more. So yes, the, the Mormon church has certainly uh, got that idea down. Yep, absolutely. You can just, that's, that's what I mean when I say now that I see it this way, I can't see it any other way. I see myself how for the last 15 years, I said, okay, I'm okay in primary and I'm okay at the primary piano. I can do that. That's not doing any harm. And now I see that it was doing harm to the most vulnerable. Those songs are still in all of our brains, right? I feel like that will be the last thing to go for all of us. They're still there. And the words of those songs and the principles behind the songs, I was doing harm. I was spreading the virus in that way to a very vulnerable and young population. Yes, Landon. Um, I, I highlighted one area in here, uh, one of the quotes. There were so many good quotes in here. I, I highlighted a bunch of them. But he said, when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called a religion. And uh, I thought that was uh, kind of funny. But uh, I'm like, how do we get so many people to to take something that, that uh, you know, can be pretty easily verifiable, that it, whether it happened or not, and yet everybody believes in it. And so when he started talking about culture and how a virus tries to attach itself to a culture and how... Throughout most of the time, culture and religion was one and the same. You couldn't you couldn't separate them. But then at the Re Reformation, uh, they began to separate culture and religion. And now you can have multiple, you know, the U.S. is the best situation where you have separation of religion and culture. Uh, but that that religion, that that religion always tries to take over the culture again. It wants to dominate the culture and it wants to control it. And you definitely see that in Utah, because when you go outside of Utah, you don't see so much of, of that uh, influence because there's so much diversity in the religion. But in Utah, with such a, 
Uh, and he talked about that in the book, how Brigham Young moving to, to here kind of made the culture and the, the religion uh, the same again. And I can certainly see that in my life, but I just thought that was the coolest uh, thing when he started talking about, you know, how culture, it, how it wants to take over. Mm -hmm. And then he linked that to some of the things that we're seeing, like uh, white Christian nationalism is, is the Christian church trying to overtake the culture and say, you must, you have to obey God, that it has to be part of our culture. And they try to force it. And there was another saying at the very beginning of the book, he says, Religion seems to inject itself into schools, courts, legislatures, presidential politics, and local school boards, detracting from rational conversations about real-world problems like science, education, economic development, disaster relief, and war. And he, he made so many situations where he said, religion could fix this if it wants to, but it's got to protect itself as, as, the, as the virus and protect its own uh, variety. Whereas if we were working together to solve these problems and looked at them without the religious component in it, we could probably solve it. But religion divides us because we don't want to do anything that would distract from the religion. And I thought that was really telling how detrimental, you know, we always said freedom of religion is a strength. And, and in this case, it seems like it might not necessarily be a strength of our uh, of our nation, it might actually be holding us back. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that was a really powerful part of the book. And you look at the early church and that's what they were doing, right? Trying to in, inflict their culture on the regular, you know, process of, of society and, and the political system. And it didn't end well. So um, before we go to Bruce, I have to answer Yvonne's question. I saw in the chat that she said, does Dr. Ray know any Mormons? So now he runs Recovering from Religion, which is an international organization for anyone that is trying to step away from religion. And they have, you know, 24-hour chats. You can even sign up to be a counselor to help. It's amazing. He, he does so much good for people of all denominations that are trying to step away. And he says, and he's seen all of them, he says to Mormons, kind of what, um, kind of what um, Karin says, oh, you poor dears. Um, he says that we are one of the worst that he's seen, one of the worst um, as far as trauma people trying to leave. When he was writing his book, Sex and God, he stumbled across the little factory talk from Boyd K. Packer, and he thought it was a joke. He thought this has got to be a joke. And the Mormons that he knew assured him this is not a joke. This is how a lot of us lived our lives during that era. And he had to make a whole chapter in that book about that talk because he couldn't believe it. So yes, he's very aware of Mormons. He has Mormons that um, help him man his live chats because they understand the high demand, high control nature um, of leaving any religion. So yeah, he feels really sorry for us. I think <laughs> so he said for a special on, kind of crazy. <laughs> a special kind of crazy is how he labels it. So yes, he's heard stories that he now knows he has to believe, but in the beginning he could not believe them. So yes, Bruce. Yeah, I just uh, thought, okay, you've got the religion, especially in Utah, being very dominant. But then there's some pushbacks that have developed in the last few years. Ex-Mormon Reddit. Mm -hmm. I mean, the quarter of a million people, um, you know, on, on Reddit talking regularly. Uh, and the other thing that I think is really kind of valuable and has taken hold is the encircle movement with the encircle houses where, you know, across from the uh, downtown Provo temple is the encircle house. I went there 
few years ago to visit. And boy, I was going like, man, what would my life have been if there was some resources like that when I was young? And so, you know, I see a few good examples of some pushback in, in Utah. Um, who knows if it's going to last or, or have significant change. It might make the virus change to be a little less um, LGBT phobic, mm -hmm. uh, a little less othering of the outsiders because we now realize so many of us uh, are in fam in highly religious families. But I, I always like to think, uh, I just try to be the fun gay uncle with my nieces and nephews, <laughs> great nieces and nephews, because they're going to go like, oh, he's okay. Yeah. Stuff. So that was just my thought on that. No, that's, that's actually brought up in the book how, and I think we see this with Mormonism, you know, the virus is getting a lot of pushback when they're openly homophobic, you know, musket talks and things like that. So I've seen that. I think most of you have that they're at least trying to appear as if they're more accepting, right? They're trying to appear. Of course, what's under the surface, we don't know. Just recently, they called a new communications spokesperson for the church, you know, the person that puts out all the statements. It used to be Eric Hawkins. You probably remember seeing his name all the time and he has some health problems. So they called a new one. It was announced in the church news. I went through the article. I'm like, wow, this guy seems kind of progressive. You know, he's worked all over the world. So this is going to be the church's spokesman. How interesting. Well, just yesterday, some other people delved into his background and discovered there's a picture of him in a pride shirt. He was at a pride parade. He is accepting. He is inclusive. He is an ally. And I have to say that there are a lot of people in the Mormon church right now who are using losing their you-know-what over this. They can't believe that the church has chosen as a spokesman somebody that would dare openly be an ally. And so to me, it's interesting. I try to think, okay, did the church know he was this? And like you said, trying to appear in their virus form as being a little more accepting so that people will kind of fall for it? Or did they really not know? So it'll be interesting to watch. But the new church spokesman um, is somebody who's an ally. So we'll see. Um, I think chapter three, Landon kind of touched on that a little bit, which is the American civil religion. And my question was, uh, do you see any evidence of religion invading an established culture? Is there such thing as a civil religion? And Landon kind of brought that up. Do we have any other comments or thoughts about that? I thought your point was really good, Landon. Or Landon, do you want to say a little bit more about that? If there's more to say now that we're on chapter three. Uh, no, I think I'll let uh, others if they want to. But yeah, it definitely, there's no doubt it's, uh, it's trying to to take over in America, but not just America. That he talked a lot about Islam and how yeah. how much that's invading the world and how that may eventually take over. I mean, if we come back two hundred years from now, we may see a completely different world than what we're what what yep. we see now as far as religious components are set. No, I think that's true. And when you talk about the vectors, and that means the method through which the virus is spread, you know, I think other religions have very effective vectors. The ones especially that are even more high demand, high control, the population is locked down. You know, you are at the mercy of the vectors being the people that are spreading the virus. You know, the, the priests, the bishops, the religious leaders. I mean, you almost don't stand a chance in some of these extraordinarily high demand, high control. So, yes, Bruce. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the civil religion. A few weeks ago, or yeah, maybe two weeks ago, John DeLynn interviewed um, Ryan T. Cragen. He's a professor in Florida of um, religious kind of demographics, and he's a former Mormon. And I listened to his book, What You Don't Know About Religion But Should. And at the end, he started talking about where he's at on secular humanism and what's valued. I'm going like, okay, I've listened to the audio book. I'm going to order the book because I want to just kind of have what he was saying. It seemed to me secular humanism, what what it values and stuff seemed to resonate with me. And so, you know, you see the more right-wing culture and I see personally the negative things in my life because of that. And I'm going like, okay, how do we push a more secular humanist thing? And he pointed out many of the founding fathers were considered deists. And I didn't really have a feeling or understanding of that, but it's obviously that they were kind of rejecting the God virus as it was being expressed. So I, I just thought that, and I'm, I've got his other book, um, um, how to defeat religion in 10 easy steps. And I've got it downloaded. I haven't listened to it yet, but he may be good, a good, um, um, lazy learners interview because he's an ex Mormon. I think he would probably come and talk to us, but his books, I read his first, first book after I read this one I'm going like oh yeah this is all kind of that same same topic yeah I agree and and the idea of what the founding fathers really believed in terms of religion is fascinating we are actually going to do an episode on that because it's not what anybody thinks for sure Melissa so I was having some interesting conversations with my husband, who's an active leading member. Oklahoma is trying to institute prayer in school and just, you know, the direction of people trying to take us to uh, Christian nationalism. And I was trying to have the conversation about him like, this is why this is the problem that people are trying to make this a Christian nation. It's it's not a Christian nation. And these are the problems with it becoming a Christian nation and just how they can't see the harm in it. They can't see the damage that could be wrought by having a nation run by uh, religion. And so having those kind of conversations is pretty interesting. The other thing I wanted to come out because you mentioned vectors and I just loved like it totally blew my mind putting Joseph Smith as a vector because when he said that as a vector, Joseph Smith was losing his ability to infect people because he was so off the walls. Like he was so far into the, I'm marrying 14 year olds, I'm burning presses. Like he was so off the rails that he was becoming inefficient for the vector. And I'm, I don't think that like the vector had him killed, like it kind of implied, but you know, I can see how the death of Joseph Smith and bringing in the new vector in Brigham Young, it changed the trajectory of the church because if Joseph Smith had stayed in doing his crazy kooky stuff of marrying 14 year olds and marrying other men's wives and all of those things that he did, he would have become an inefficient vector. And so 
in order for the church to become what it is now, they had to get rid of that vector had to go away. And I never thought about it like that. Well, because I thought, you know, he was really a prophet, but you know, now I'm looking at that going, holy cow, that makes so much more sense now. Why somebody could be going so off the rails and the, the virus is like, Oh, no, that's not working for me anymore. I was like, Whoa. Yeah, no, I love that too. It has to self-police itself kind of, right? Because, or look at uh, mega churches and the pastor has affairs or, you know, you have to, the, the important thing is that the word gets out, the virus keeps spreading. And if that vector is inefficient, it has to be cast aside. Absolutely. So yeah, like I said, I cannot see it any other way than that now. Landon. Do you have your hand up, Landon? Yeah, sorry. I've got so okay. many screens. I lost my mouse. Landon has like a whole <laughs> command center. He's running everything. <laughs> the, the, the one thing uh, that I, I didn't mention that I uh, in my notes here is uh, the fact that uh, he, he talks about what happens when religion does take over a society. And you look at like Iran, uh, you know, the Zoroastrianism is on how much science they had and how much learning they had and how that just disappeared. And you kind of think, how do how do groups go backwards and, and lose these things? And the answer is religion. <laughs> religion takes over. It dominates the culture. You look at Afghanistan and what the uh, what what they did there, just destroying all the art, all the history, all the uh, all in the name of theology. So he he points out how dangerous it is when religions take over. We don't go forward. We go backwards. You. you Religion has stayed, stepped in the way of every advancement, it seems, uh, that mankind tries to make. Uh, and then when it finally does make it, then they take credit for it and say, oh, God gave us this after they did everything to stop it. So he may, he shows how dangerous it is. I thought that was important. Yeah. And that's such an infuriating point. And Landon and I were discussing this the other day because we thought this would be an interesting episode of Mormonist to do. Just talk about all the times throughout history of religion has literally actively blocked things that could improve humanity or just knowledge or awareness. And if you start making a list, it's pretty disheartening. It absolutely is. So good point, Landon. Jackie. Hi, sorry, couldn't get the <laughs> mute off. You know, I love this chapter. And what's been on my mind is the comparison of um, the Islam religion and this far right evangelical religion as a you know the civil religion and about a year ago last august out of the blue i said you know i'm gonna just do some research on the characteristics of a fundamental religion and i pulled up i probably got a couple of thesis you know papers master's thesis and they didn't even mention mormonism but you know they had about five criteria and it's always the doctrine is above the people and and I kind of freaked out for about three months and just kind of ran around the house to my husband saying, I was raised in a fundamentalist religion. I was raised in a fundamentalist religion. I can't believe it. And, you know, I sat there and then started kind of comparing the two. And, you know, evangelicals and this far right religious, you know, I hate, I don't want it to be politicized. This cultural kind of thing that's going on, this far right. You know, they just are so fearful of the Islamic religion and they're their enemy and they hate them. And they, you know, they freak out about Sharia law. We hate Sharia law. We hate Sharia law. It's so bad. But they're pushing Ten Commandments. 
in our country, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. We've got to have the Ten Commandments. And, you know, the Supreme Court threw out um, Roe versus Wade. And they, they can't see that they're doing the same thing. I mean, it's all this fundamental God virus, mass movement, mind games. And it, it just sweeps through, you know, and these thesis statements pointed out all the far right extreme religions. I think it's the, the, the Sikhs in the, in the Indian religion. I mean, every religion gets this far right fundamentalist group that takes, tries to take over. So I just have kind of been going through the contrasts of the civil religion and how similar it is to like the Islamic religion. It's just kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it is mind blowing. And especially when you look at it through the lens of this metaphor of the virus, you can really see how some religions take it to the nth degree where it's absolutely obvious what's happening. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, this is kind of, again, going back to um, that book uh, by Ryan Cragen. He, he talks about fundamentalist religion and, and the real negative effect. And then at the far other end, he talks about secular humanism. But he said the liberal religions like um, the Episcopalians, the Unitarians, a lot, I guess the Quakers, um, are not near as bad and they may be the best allies of the secular humanist on that end of the spectrum. And I'm going like, okay, if somebody feels they need religion, you know, become an Episcopalian. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very open yeah. about things or become a Unitarian. I mean, they're even more open about things. And if, if you you know, have people in your lives that are looking for a religion, which is also a community, mm -hmm. steering them towards the Unitarians, the Episcopalians and stuff is better than towards the Southern Baptists. You know, just, just a thought on that. So you have a hierarchy of less harm. Yeah. Is that right, Bruce? So no, and, and it's a good point because you may think, okay, here's someone in my life who hasn't had religion forever and ever, as they talk about when somebody's vulnerable, just like, you know, when you're vulnerable to a virus, someone has died, you're having a financial crisis, you're having a mental health crisis, you're having problems at home, your children, that is when the virus can infiltrate. And I think about the missionary program, oh. they tell mission. Sorry, my dog is snoring. Oh my gosh, I hope you can't hear that. <laughs> um, they tell missionaries to seek out people. I think they call them during life events or something. But what it really means is those very pivotal times where they are susceptible to, you know, getting involved in a religion like that. So yeah, really interesting point. All right, let's move ahead to chapter four. I can see that we're not going to make it all the way through, but that's fine because we're just talking about things as they go. And that's great. Um, so chapter four is God loves you, the guilt that binds. Oh my goodness, we know about guilt in Mormonism. So my question from this chapter was kind of what role does guilt play in the propagation of many religions, of course, not just Mormonism, and how is it used to bind people to the God virus? What is its function? Did anybody have any thoughts about this chapter and guilt? Or do we feel guilty from having even read it? <laughs> I just think, I don't know if we even recognize that it's guilt sometimes. I just feel like you, for some people, I think guilt feels like duty. You've just got to do it. It's up to you. You're the one that has to do it in the church. This whole new um, covenant path strategy 
that they've come up with in the last couple of years. The idea that you set foot, it used to be you set foot on the covenant path at age eight when you made that rational decision as an eight-year-old to be baptized and you're locked in and you better feel really guilty if you take a step away from that path and you know the trajectory. But now I've heard them say that you set foot on the covenant path even before you were born. So you have predestined yourself to all of this. And with that mindset, if you really believe what they're telling you, incredible guilt. If you do anything that deviates from that path that they have outlined for you, and they can just say back to you, you already chose this, you chose this. And that results in so much guilt, I think. And it's, I think the idea of the covenant path is just one of the most harmful things they've come up with. Yes, Bruce. Well, when you think about you know, control levers, uh, if they could control you by breathing, because you have to breathe, mm -hmm. they can control you not to, it doesn't, it doesn't last long enough to keep control over you. Control over what you eat, they've made some efforts in that, but it's, it's pretty light, you know, alcohol, tobacco, coffee, and tea. But when you get to something like sexuality that's a lever that they can control and really mess you up and guilt is i mean you know on ex-mormon reddit and stuff people talking about you know messing around a little before their temple marriage and then you find out all the number of people who were having sex before their temple marriage they just kept their mouth shut about it and um, in some of my ex-Mormon um, gatherings, you know, we'll have a lot of people. And sometimes we sit around and talk for hours. And some some of the guys talked about, like, I, I never masturbated my whole mission. And other guys are going like, oh, I did every day. I just didn't worry about it. And everybody's going like, what on both camps? Because it was so different. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting it's a lever that really controls. If you can be made to feel guilty about something, then they have control over you. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, we did an interview with Natasha um, Helfer about guilt and sexuality. And the people that tend to get trapped in this guilt cycle are the people that already have a level of scrupulosity or OCD. Like you said, Bruce, some people are like, whatever, I did that every day. Other people are just absolutely racked with guilt. And, and those stories can be completely horrifying. So there are some people that are very hardwired to just feel that and, and it's paralyzing them. And it keeps them in these high demand, high control situations for life because the guilt is just insurmountable. Yes, David. I've got to say, this is one of the ones that really made me angry. I don't normally get angry when I go through books. Oh. Um, Did you throw the book, I, David? Did you throw it? <laughs> oh, you know, in my job, I often throw the book at people, but this was <laughs> to a new celestial level. Remember, think celestial. Um, but this was this was about me reflecting over all the years, all those people that I ever interviewed for baptism, all those people I interviewed for Melchizedek Priesthood. This reminded me of the, the apparent consent that my father, who was no longer a Mormon, had to give for my mom to go to the temple in the 80s. This was about the consent of those that just before their eighth birthday, that they freely knew what they were going to get into. You know, the whole point of consent means providing a genuine choice that 
if they are able to refuse, there is no detriment. How many times on a Sunday did we have to do the, the corridor patrol? You're not in Sunday school, get into Sunday school. Why are you outside of your sacrament meeting? It was all about control. It was about guilt. So there was very little about what I would call a, a spiritual upliftment. And I would often get into a, a, a very warm discussion with the state president and say, how many times do we have people who may want to sit at the end of a sacrament meeting and just sit and carefully reflect? Mm -hmm. But no, what we have to do is we have 10 minutes to herd everybody into their next meeting. And so this brought, I, obviously there's a lot of unresolved anger in me. I can't, I can't believe it. But <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> it made me reflect all of those. And hence you can see what my previous remarks were about, you know, on my family that we've inflicted this. This has been passed back to us as a, as a contagion of behavior. This is the way that we should react. But how can it, you know, if it's been led by guilt, nothing ever came that was of good by guilt. No, that, I love that. Nothing ever came that was good by guilt. Yep, that's exactly right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was a very triggering chapter for all of us realizing our own guilt and how it was used to control us and also how we perhaps in different leadership positions or as parents used guilt to manipulate and pass the virus to children or other vulnerable people in our lives. So, oh, it's so real. Geraldine. Uh, I underlined a passage in here about how guilt has become the greatest tool of Western religion. And then he went on to say, the more guilt you feel, the more you look to your religion to solve the guilt. So it's self-perpetuating. Yeah. You, you know, you're made to feel guilty. So then you go to church and you confess or you, you know, you do penance or you don't take the sacrament. You do all these things and it just binds you closer and closer all the time. Affects you deeper and deeper. That was all. Yeah. No, that is so real. And and I think Landon and Tom and I were talking about the whole idea of the atonement. You're told someone did this incredible thing for you. They died for you in a horrific way. You owe them everything. If you do anything wrong, the guilt that surrounds it. I mean, this is an act. You don't have any concept of what this is, but you are raised thinking that you have this guilt hanging over your head of someone having done this incredible thing for you and you better live your life, you know, to make to make up with that, right? And you're very guilty if you don't. So yeah, it's just, it's such a damaging concept, yet it's seen as the most beautiful concept in Christianity, but it's not. Yes, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, uh, just a week or two ago, somebody on Reddit asked, what's the best thing about leaving the Mormon church? And I just wrote, internalizing the feeling that I am not broken. And Reddit kind of reports back to you when you have a certain level of thumbs up. And I think the last time that I looked that comment, and it was just that one line in, in hundreds of other comments that people had made had 80 thumbs up because that resonated internalizing feeling that you're not broken. That, that has freed me you know, so much that I'm not broken. I'm gay, I do this, I do that. There's nothing wrong with me. So that's kind oh. of. No, that's really powerful, Bruce. And that's, that's what I mean. You're born broken. According yes. to your religion, you're born broken and there's nothing farther from the truth. But 
it's even having left, it's really hard to get over that mindset that there is something wrong with you. And now there's something wrong with you for leaving, right? So did you say that Daryl's coming in, uh, Landon? Yep, there he is right there. There he is, Dr. Daryl Ray. Hi, how are you today? Uh, good. I'm a little bit early, so uh, go ahead with whatever you're doing. I won't interrupt things. No, it's perfect. We were working through the book chapter by chapter, and it's taken an hour to even get to chapter four because there's oh. so much amazing information. So no, this book has absolutely resonated with all of us. And and somebody asked the question, um, is Dr. Ray aware of Mormons? And we're like, oh, he knows about Mormons. <laughs> he says, I'm so sorry for you all. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was early exposed to Mormons. I started dating a gal in, uh, in late high school, early college. I did not know she was Mormon. And uh, the first date, I got invited to come to her house. I think, whoa, this is good. I like this. I get there and she pulls out a book of Mormon. And anyway, that was our first and our last date. <laughs> well, she was trying to spread the virus, Dr. Ray. And she sure uh, you was. <laughs> walk away. Yep. Well, this is excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like like I said, we've just been working our way through the chapters and talking and, and this book has just been, we've had the gamut of emotions. You know, we appreciate it. We're angry about the information because, you know, of what it makes us realize we've gone through and it's, it's very cathartic, I feel. So I think what we'll do is we'll just let anybody, you know, and of course, Dr. Ray, I told everybody that, you know, um, if you want to ask a question, you've read the book, but but I, I, I think all of us have have read it. And we'll just we'll just start asking questions and we'll raise our little hand. Maybe Landon, you do it just to show Dr. Ray what it'll look like. I'm sure he knows. Um, oh, yeah, I've, I've you, you got it. You got it. You're a Zoom, Zoom savvy kind of guy. And we'll just ask some questions and it can be about any chapter. We don't have to go in order now. We're, we, that was just kind of to give a framework. So does anybody have a question to start out with that they would like to ask about the material or just about Dr. Ray uh, in general? Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Well, just kind of going back, Yvonne had to leave and she's the one who asked the question, you know, does he know mu right. much about Mormons? And yeah, tell us a, a little like in your in your work and stuff, what you've come across with Mormons and in others. It, it's just interesting. Uh, yeah. I, you know, you might be interested in some research I did about 10 years ago uh, called uh, Sex and Secularism, where we looked at people who used to be religious and are now secular at 14,960 people. It was a huge, huge survey. And uh, uh, from that survey, we were able to quantify the level of guilt and shame of each religion. It's a, it's a, I, I'm just blown away by my own study. I, I'm not brag. Yeah, I am bragging here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a groundbreaking study because we, for the first time, were able to say, here are, here are the religions that bring the most shame and guilt uh, to, to their, their adherence. And uh, guess where Mormonism was? <laughs> Number one. <laughs> out of out of about <laughs> out, I think we had 20 we had enough people out of 28 different religions that we could quantify it there were more religions I mean we had a few Hindus you know we had a, a few Jews but we didn't have enough in those areas to quantify as much but Mormons came out uh, depending on how we calculated somewhere between number one and number two in shame and guilt now, Jehovah's Witnesses are right up there beside you. You are the top two in the continental United States, and not in the United States. Uh, about 80% of all respondents came from within the United States. So and this is quantifiable. This is not 
you know, I'm, I'm not just making this stuff up. It, it was what people told us in the survey. We had 69 questions in the survey. And one of the questions, and that was that was accidental, by the way. We, we had 69 questions. And, okay, one person got the joke. <laughs> yeah. I just got it. I'm a little slow. <laughs> yeah. Shauna seemed to be laughing right away. As a good oh, right covering away. our book next. Yeah. We know where her uh, mind is. <laughs> I, I, like, I like her. She, uh, she knows exactly where my mind goes way too often. But anyway, so, uh, so there's the one answer to your question. The level of shame and guilt... Um, the best religions, best in terms of their ability to infect and keep people infected, are going to use high doses of shame and guilt. And that keeps you coming back to church because every time you do something that's shameful or, or guilt-inducing, you have to go get forgiveness. Well, where do you get it? No Mormon goes to get forgiveness to a Jehovah's Witness temp, uh, place. And no no Jehovah's Witness goes and, and, and confesses their sins to a Catholic priest. You only go back to get forgiveness from the place you learned the guilt from. And, and that's a real, in the book, I call that the guilt cycle we'll find in, the, in the fifth chapter. And every one of us have been affected by the, the guilt cycle. It's a brilliant, as a psychologist, it's uh it's a brilliant psychological strategy for keep keeping people close to their religion. Yeah, and do you feel that the high demand, high control nature, there are more things, more ways that you can break the rules, right? So more ways to feel guilty because it's your entire right. life is scripted and almost every day there's an opportunity to do it wrong. So. Well, I will just say uh, maybe in a little bit more answer to what Bruce's question was, you guys are still amateurs. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> because there are groups out there that are, even more efficient and more effective. For example, and this this just this is information I couldn't get from my research because we didn't have enough. But Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, highly conservative Jews have far more rules and guilt-inducing um, methods than you than Mormons have. And and uh, the way I've learned this is we get Jews. Hasidic Jews or or other kinds of really conservative Jews chatting into recovering from religion. And what we hear is just incredible stories that virtually every minute of your day is programmed, uh, both men and women, and the amount of shame that people, I mean, uh, we just had a guy chat in, he, he's, he's, he's over 40 years old, he's been studying the Bible, uh, Old Testament his whole life. Uh, and that's all he's done. He has no job skills. He, I mean, he has job skills, but not things that we would. You know, he works a part time job to keep enough food on the table. But beyond that, he, he doesn't really have any skills. All he knows to do is how to study uh, the Bible. And and he says, I, I feel guilty even thinking about e eating bacon. <laughs> now, do any of you guys feel guilty about bacon? No, you feel guilty about coffee, but not Mormons bacon. Love bacon. Yeah, yeah, see, so Mormons embrace bacon. <laughs> I what I think is most important to understand is that every religion has guilt-inducing methods, and for and for Jews and for Muslims, it's bacon, you know, or it's that kind of thing. You have your own guilt-inducing things, and that includes caffeine, for example. Uh, religions like to use food to keep you feeling bad about yourself. And they, and even more so, they like to use sex to keep you feeling bad about yourself. So if you got food and sex, you know what else you got? <laughs> yeah. 
You got to eat it down. It, you got to eat Yeah, you can't. <laughs> you control everybody. <laughs> well, exactly. and like Bruce brought up before you came on, he said, or I think it was Bruce said, or maybe it was David said, you could control breathing because that's something everyone must do. But that doesn't, that wouldn't, you know, your congregants would drop dead pretty quickly. So you have to pick those things well, there, that they have to Bru do. Bruce, Bruce is on to something there. If you think about it, <laughs> the Buddhists actually do try to help you learn to control breathing. Never thought about that. Uh, and that, and, and that you know, not everything that religions comes come up with are bad, although Buddhism is definitely a religion, no matter what they say, except in California. It doesn't seem to be a religion there. But because Buddhism learned that breathing actually makes you feel better. Certain kinds of breathing does things to your autonomic nervous system. Now, they Buddha didn't know this 2,500 years ago. He just noticed that that's what happens. And what we now know is certain breathing methodologies help you relax and and stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system so you can relax and not feel stressed so breathing it you know so you're jo you were joking but there are some religions that it have actually done that i noticed lynette has a question i'm gonna it's okay to jump to her to you lynette? yeah jump around and then i think brenda okay. had a question too although i'm not seeing it on the screen but landon is telling me there's a question from brenda so yes okay. let's do those two um, I noticed that in the book, you talked a lot about how, um, especially in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of influence in politics because of religion. And your book was published in 2009, I believe. Um, have you noticed any change since then? Has it gotten worse? Is it less? <laughs> oh, Lynette, you, uh, I, I didn't pay her to say that. I'm just saying. <laughs> but if you'll look on the book, the subtitle is how religion affects our lives and the culture. And what the, the whole reason I wrote, or one of the main reasons I wrote this book, um, as I told Rebecca and Landon in our earlier conversation, was because I wrote an essay way back in 1973 on the civil religion. Now, most of you have probably never heard that term before until you read my book. And in the fourth chapter, I talk about the civil religion. And I, you, if you look back at U.S. history, we've always had a somewhat odd religion. Um, it's the religion that, of, for example, Manifest Destiny, that was first espoused in the 1820s and 30s, where somebody came up with the crazy idea that we're the new Israel. You know, just about the time Mormonism is starting to take hold or get born. We got this new Israel idea and that we have manifest destiny to conquer all of North America, hence the frontier and God's um, mandate for us to commit genocide, you know, or whatever else we needed to do to take over the, uh, the land. So this this civil religion has always been there, but it morphs and it evolves into different things. And you can look at how it, how it looked in the 1890s after the conquest of the you know, pretty much the whole continent. And, and we see it, it morphs a little bit into, uh, uh, that's, for example, that's when the uh, Pledge of Allegiance was, was put together. That's when some of the songs that we now consider patriotic songs were first written was in that 1890s time period. And as you go through and you just look at every decade, you can see this morphing. In the 1950s, part of the civil religion was uh, the McCarthy era. And fighting the godless communists. Well, why are you fighting the godless communists if you don't have a religious motivation to do that? 
I mean, never mind. I mean, my grandmother bought into this religion big time. She thought there was a communist under every bed and in every closet. So, and boy, if you said the wrong word, she would accuse you of being a communist. It was just, and it, it was a deep part of her religion. She'd go to church every Sunday. And my grandfather was a country church preacher. And I had to, I had to go to church and listen to my grandpa preach sermons every Sunday that if I was visiting them, we had to go to church. And I, it would be nothing but a Republican sermon about how Jesus had blessed the United States. You know, it's very, it's very clearly a religious, political religious thing. And what we've seen is this evangelical evolution of religion that started about 1979 or so with Jerry Falwell and religious rights and all that sort of stuff. That has built and built and built until now to say something, uh, you know, against this evangelical uh, evolution of religion is to be anti, anti-God. anti I mean, I can't, I cannot criticize the, the that religion without being called unpatriotic. And if you look at the religious symbols of all these religions, they have taken over the national symbols. I mean, I drive down my road in my in my neighborhood, and there will be a some kind of a religious iconography on a flagpole right alongside the American flag. None of my neighbors uh, uh, who are liberal or Democrat or even somewhat moderate have a flag out there with a Christian symbol on it. Uh, sometimes they have the Christian flag on top and the American flag on the bottom, which is technically illegal. And it's all over my, I'm not all over, but there's quite a few people around here who have that going on. So this is evidence of the evolution of the civil religion. Now, civil doesn't mean it's civilized. It just, that's what we call it. It's, the, it's infected. It's infected our culture. And that's, um, yes, yeah, so my, that's my long answer, Lynette. My short answer is, hell yeah. We have seen a huge, and it's rooted in what Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson all started uh, with the, quote, moral majority about 1979. And they just systematically built that up over, over the years. They played the long game. It's 40, 50 years ago they started all this. So, yeah, big change. And it, and I, I'm proud to say, no, I'm not proud to say, I'm, I don't know, pride or not, I, I am a prophet. I mean, you guys know all about prophets and Mormonism, <laughs> but I'm a prophet, Lynette. If you read my yeah. book, you realize I was prophesying this stuff back in 2009. Here's the problem why I'm such a bad prophet is I did not prophesy I would get nearly this bad. I had no idea of that how how much the evangelical world would take over. I mean, if you ask uh Go to Congress and just find out how many people there identify as evangelical Christians. You'll be shocked. It's it's the majority. Even no matter where they fall on the on the spectrum of politics, there's still even a, a lot in every area. So, and somebody okay. brought up in the comments, aren't there more nuns? I think it was Cindy that people that are becoming nuns, not nuns, but N O N E S. Yeah. And I wonder if that's a backlash because if the civil religion gets so strong, eventually people are just like, nope, I'm out. I mean, you can see it. It's becoming a them and a nun. So, but you are a prophet. We think you're a prophet. <laughs> well, we are seeing a huge increase in the nuns. Uh, the statistics are, uh, are are almost unbelievable in some, in some ways. Uh, and basically the younger the uh, cohort is, the more nuns there are. And, 
of course, that's partly why I founded Recovery from Religion, because people need help. You know, they don't know where to go when they leave their religion. And we see a progression. Uh, I, I don't write about some of the stuff I can talk about today. I didn't write in the book because I didn't know it. I mean, look at all the time that's passed, passed and how much research, uh, not just me, but a lot of like the Pew Pew um, organization has done tons of research in this area. And what we're finding is that people are leaving religion in droves. But when they leave that religion, they oftentimes go through a, a, a phased or a step or an evolutionary process. Most most evangelicals, well, let's say you're a, a Catholic and you leave the Catholic Church. Most people don't go straight to being secular. They move from being a Catholic to being an evangelical. I literally just went to a funeral of a of a person who went through that phase. They left the Catholic Church. They went to become an evangelical. And then when they're finished, when they realize the evangelical is all bullshit, and the Catholic Church is too, then they move just, well, let me get a little different church that's more accepting. And and they they move slowly but surely. And a lot of people go three or four before they actually uh, get to what we would call pure secularism. And, you know, the people who don't go through that phase, I'll go clear back to uh, Bruce's earlier question. The people who don't seem to go through that phase are the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And the reason I think what's going on there, I don't see Mormons leaving the Mormon church and become Baptists. I don't see Jehovah's Witnesses leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses and becoming Catholics. They're just not doing that. They're leaving the church and going straight being atheist or agnostic or at least nothing. And I think it's because they saw the worst <laughs> and they've already seen the worst and they can see that nothing else is going to be any better. And they just seem to take one step out. Whereas if you were a Baptist, they seem to go through three or four phases. If you're a Catholic, they seem to go through three or four phases. Um, we've got we've got some pretty strong evidence in that area, but I didn't come here to talk just about that. <laughs> It's so okay. interesting, though. We want to keep you here for four or five hours. I'm not kidding. So I think Brenda had a question, and then it looks like David has a question. So, okay. <laughs> so yeah, um, Dr. Wright, I wanted to talk about um, the civil religion, and you pretty much answered that. Um, but I, I think I'm concerned more about today what is going on with um, religious zealousness toward politics, um, especially because I have a couple brothers who seem to be gone off the rails. They're, they're, they profess, I don't know if they pro even profess they're Mormons anymore, but they went from that to these um, groups where they are practicing for a civil war. They're stockpiling weapons and, you know, they're all in Idaho, Utah. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, that seems to becoming be, to, becomes a religion in a way, isn't that true? And how, how can I help? <laughs> That's my kind of. <laughs> how can I help my brothers? <laughs> well, let me let me answer your question, but also say I'm not sure I can give you too many ways to help, so to speak. I, I let's break down this notion of religion uh, into a much broader category. Uh, Clearly, Mormonism is a religion. Clearly, Baptists are religion. Clearly, Islam is a religion. But all of those are also ideologies. And all ideologies have similarity, bear strong similarities to religion. 
I don't know where you are. I don't know how thoroughly you read the, read the book, but there's one part in the book when I talk about communism was a religion as well. And yet most people would say, well, no, communism is not a religion. It's atheistic. No, it's a religion. And if you look at the, it has the trappings of religion. Looking at Egypt, five, four, um, Egypt 4,000 years ago when they were building the pyramids and they were putting the pharaohs in there, those pharaohs became gods forever. They were, and they were off to, you know, the nether netherlands or whatever. Well, if you look at where is stop, where is uh, Lenin right now, the founder of the Soviet Union? He's in a damn mausoleum in Moscow where people still come to walk by his co coffin or casket or whatever it is by the millions. Where is Kim Jong-un, the founder of North Korea? He's in a mausoleum where people go worshiping. These are supposedly or were communist organizations, but they have the trappings of religion. And ideologies like that, especially the, the more rabid and radical ones, uh, like you, you've described, uh, oftentimes have, well, have rituals. I mean, look at the gun worship that's going on in, in those groups. They worship their guns. <laughs> Some people say they, you know, it's a penis worship. Okay, I could probably get along with that too. <laughs> uh, they have, they have, out groups and in groups, people they hate and people they accept. And God is all tied up with it because they believe God is on their side. You know, it's like uh, kind of the opposite of what Abraham Lincoln. I, I, I don't want to be on, I don't want God on my side. I just want to be on God's side. And that That's quoting or paraphrasing something Abraham Lincoln said. Well, everybody in the Civil War thought God was on their side and they were shooting each other even as they thought God was on their side. And you see the same thing in other in other cultures, like the shooting war between the between the Sunnis and the Shias in the in the Middle East has been going on for a thousand years. People ever people all over the place want to bring their God into their ideology because it adds more heft, if you will, to the ideology. What we're seeing right now is that Christian ideology has married to nationalist ideology. And we all know what nationalism looks like. Um, in, in Nazi Germany, Nazis were the nationalists. But you see it, nationalism in a lot of countries. Nationalism arose uh, around the 18, beginning of the 1800s, shortly after the Napoleonic Wars ended. We've seen a rise of nationalism across Europe. We've seen it in other countries as well. And nationalism isn't always bad, it, but it, it easily morphs into something else. We are God's. We are God's culture. We are God's country. I mean, Israel thinks it. You know, it's the primary, primary uh, country uh, under God. Well, wasn't that what Joseph Smith and uh, Brigham Young, especially in Utah, did? We're the only true, true religion. So again, that's a nationalistic religion. Mormonism has been nationalistic from very early. I won't say from the very beginning. Joseph Smith ran for president. How, more, how much more nationalistic can you get if your if your primary cult leader is also running for pol major political office? That just that just helps us see how the civil religion gets mixed in, just woven in to the theology. And as I say in the book over and over again, I say it I don't know how many times. Religion wants to infect our political system 
because that makes it easier for the religion to exist. That's why religions want to take over our educational system, want to make sure there's prayer in the schools, want to force children to read the Bible inside of a public school, want to force kids to, you know, if the Mormons could get away with it, they'd have their Bible study stuff right in the school. But instead, they built the school next to the church so you can just walk across the street and get your Bible lesson that that uh, day and then you go back. But that's not ideal. The ideal is to get it right inside the, the school, which they did for about 60 or 70 years until the Supreme Court said, and you can't do that anymore. Anyway, I, I, that's a long answer, but did I answer the question a little bit? I think you did. I think we have David right. and then we have Jeffrey. Everybody has so okay. many questions. David? First of, all, first of all, thank you very much for your intimate introduction to self-flagellation that you call the virus. Um, <laughs> you know, we we earlier in the conversation, I certainly expressed lots of historic guilt and some of it was in church leadership and some of it was in family. But one point that I did see, which I which I had to smile at, was I think it was um, chapter nine, when you talk about this commonality about the family that prays together stays together. Now, I haven't had that poster on our wall for many years for our for our growing children. You know, it was like, well, if our children are going off the rails, then we must be doing something wrong. We can't be praying mm -hmm. hard enough. It was if you're um, not doing well at church, then obviously you're not praying hard enough. There was always something you could never quite get to that point where there was this happiness, there was this peace. And I just wonder, with that motto, I suppose we could call it, it almost unified every faith across the world because they all believe in the fact that if, if there's something wrong with your family, you're not praying hard enough. And then therefore... You must be having a problem with your marriage. You must be having a problem with your wife. So it's probably more of a an observation that it's this reciprocal or this cyclic um, self-flagellation. Anytime that anything isn't working, you are the wrong person. You are at fault. And then there must be something else that you must be doing. So, yeah, I'm I'm totally whipped literally over over your book. <laughs> Um, I've I've just bought your um, other one about the, the sex and relationship one, so I'm going to see how far more I have to learn. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> no, you're going to love that one, David. You are going to love that one. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, David, I will say that the um, the notion that you're always wrong is is a critical notion to with any religious ideology, because if that is not true, then that opens the crack to the door that maybe the religion is wrong. So religions have to convince you from very early age that they have the answers to all of life's problems. I mean, it's, it's a all consuming, totally uh, engulfing ideology that says if, if you're having problems, it's because you haven't read enough of the Bible, you haven't listened to your minister enough, you haven't gone to enough rituals, you haven't practiced rituals like praying as a family. There's always going to be something. And whether it's Mormonism or Islam, I hear the same kind of guilt and shame coming from an Islamic person in Syria as I do from a Mormon person from Utah. It, it's the same. It's the, the interesting thing about evolution and I'm talking biological evolution right now. Biological evolution, if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, I would suggest go study it. It's fascinating. Biological evolution conserves. The genes that work get conserved. Biology doesn't want to throw a good gene out because it's hard to create a good gene. 
it may take several million years to develop a gene that that have, helps you survive within a uh, ecological system. So that's biology. Well, religion is the same way. Religions conserve their genes. Now, in the sense of genes, here I'm talking, I, I want to use the term meme. Now, we all see memes coming across our Facebook page or whatever else. And uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins is the one that invented that term meme. He he first wrote about it in, a, in his uh, great, wonderful book called The Selfish Gene. And in that, he observed that genes are preserved in biology, and so are memes. What is a meme? A meme is a unit of culture that's passed from my brain to your brain. That meme could be destructive to me. It could be helpful to me. I mean, algebra is a meme, if you will. It's a very good meme for us to have. But believing that I'm a worthless piece of crap because I masturbated this morning, that's a meme too. And it makes me feel bad about myself and makes me feel closer. Uh, the need to come back to my, my religion. So these things, these meme, meme, meme plexes, I even talk about late in the book, the meme plex. Meme plex is a group of beliefs and structures, ideas that all come together to create a single religion. Well, let me tell you something. You're not going to hear out of, this, out of too many people's mouths, but I think Joseph Smith was an amazing genius. What he did was he studied Islam. He studied the Masonic rituals. He, the guy took a wide range of knowledge. I mean, he wasn't um, university educated or anything, but he was able to take a wide range of knowledge and synthesize it and say, what are the most effective memes? that will create a religion, puts them together. Now, he did have to do a little experimentation because he did write the Book of Mormon like three times or something like that. And he did change the rituals. But it's, an, it's, it's clearly an evolution. And he was, he was just an amazing social scientist, if you will, or social psychologist in his ability to identify what's going to work and what doesn't work put it into a religion and make, and it becomes compelling, really compelling. So I, I love talking to Mormons because as much as I hate Mormonism as an ideology, I admire it as an invention, a human invention by a genius that predates L. Ron Hubbard. I don't know if you've read any of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. You guys are just the early Scientology. It's all you are. And L. Ron Hubbard had a famous saying, if you want to get rich, create a religion. <laughs> and he went about creating Scientology. And he did exactly the same thing. L. Ron Hubbard studied all these components of many different religions. And then he took those components, changed some of the names, and made a religion out of it. That's, to this day, very compelling for the adherence of Scientology. There's so, by the way, there are amazing parallels. If you're going to study Islam. When you study Islam, watch at the parallels between Islam and Mormonism. It is remarkable how many things are extremely parallel. It's almost like Joseph Smith said, let's recreate Islam and make it into a Christian, a semi-quasi-Christian religion, which, which he did. All right. Sorry about that. I, I can go on and on about this stuff. So that's why you're here. We like to hear you go on and on. It's it's so fascinating. No, and I agree. Uh, Jeffrey, I think you had a question. 
I did. Well, and, and actually, just a thought based on that evolution argument, uh, just as an aside, and, and the uh, in the 80s, when I was a teenager, Mormonism was much more compelling from the outside, in the sense that we had dances and it seemed like a normal place to raise your family, etc. I think that, that that has been lost to some extent. And so that's why the church is struggling. And it just it's growing only on the basis of of either going into brand new markets like Africa or it's just uh, relying on the fact that people are reproducing so that you indoctrinate the, the kids from a young age. But th this gets to my question. Uh, you know, I've heard a few people say that or, or actually before I give my question, just to preface, you may be aware of this. But Mormonism, the ideology of Mormonism actually is not stable at all. I think that that's very different than some evangelical and Islamic and, and other fundamentalist re religions where the ideology is reasonably stable. In fact, I asked uh, a couple of my my uh, active uh, brothers, like what constitutes a doctrine that has not changed since 1830? And the only answer I've gotten back is baptism by immersion. I mean, this is just yep. something about yeah. everything else has changed the notion of god what the rituals are like whether we're gathering to zion whether the jesus is coming like in the late 1800s or next april uh so you know i think that uh you know that that is not stable at all and and the the interesting question this is more of maybe because i know you do empirical work the uh i've heard some people say some social scientists say that as a religion tries to assimilate too much it loses, you know, using your metaphor, maybe it loses its viral uh, propensity. It just becomes less compelling because now it just looks like another conservative religion. And I'm just curious if, if one, if you agree with that, and secondly, if you see that with other religions, uh, and I mean, just as an aside, I, mean, I live in San Francisco. One thing I've noticed in, in the U.S. is because of this religious thing is there's just this huge segregation. I mean, all these problems I hear about on the news, we don't experience here at all. And that's because all the religionists think this place is hell and they left. And so, you know, so we just all hang out with the progressives and, you know, we argue about like, what's the best way to deal with homelessness or. Yeah. Or right. Yeah. But, well, but I just me... from empirical, if, if you find that, or if you one, if you agree with that hypothesis that as a church tries to assimilate, does it lose its, its uh, ability to grow? And then secondly, I, I mean, are you seeing that with other religions besides Mormonism? Yes and no. First of all, I'd say on the whole, I would agree with that hypothesis and the way you characterize it, I think is accurate. Uh, however, all religions have to evolve, just like all biological organisms have to evolve. And if you go back to the 1820s and 30s, 128 different religions got started in upstate New York. Only three of them still exist today, Mormonism being one of those three religions. That is an incredible example of, of evolution and extinction. 125 of those religions are extinct today. So the genius of, of Joseph Smith was to set up an organizational structure that had flexibility to evolve. And so when you guys say you, you have a living prophet, basically you're telling me your organization has the ability and permission to change uh, according to whatever's going on in the culture. And you, we see this. Uh, I mean, why look at the, look at the way the church backed off of, of uh, that 
whole um, debacle around children in gay in gay uh, in gay in gay families. I mean, they you know that child is going to hell. You know, I know you guys aren't in, into the hell thing, but anyway, they they that child cannot be a Mormon because they they have two um, you know lesbian mothers or gay fathers, and that church backed off of that big time with the huge uproar. And do you know how many people have come to us for recovery from religion saying, I left Mormonism over that issue alone? That one issue probably cost you 5% of your membership right there. And, and that may be conservative. I don't know. Boy, it sure, it sure did. But all religions have to evolve. And Mormonism is created in such a way that it, it has an intrinsic evolutionary structure. That is really different from evangelicals and it only it, it's only a possible because you have a central authority that can allow that to happen and guide it catholic church is similar why has the catholic church been so successful basically for about 1700 years you can't call the catholic church anything but you know amorphous before about 325 a.d so for 17 or 18 or years the catholic church has been able to evolve and occasionally it got stuck. And then when it got stuck, you'd have Martin Luther come in and blow everything up for you. But, but because you have a central authority that can manage the evolutionary process, it helps the uh, religion remain successful. If, if an organization, can, an organism, biological organism, can evolve to meet, meet the challenges of its local environment, it's going to be successful and thrive. And the same thing is true of religions. Same thing is true of ideologies. I mean, look at communist ideology. It, didn't, it, it couldn't evolve. It, it got stuck in itself. And eventually, you know, it collapsed in on itself. That's when the Soviet Union collapsed. But when I see the Soviet Union collapsing, I say to myself, that's the collapse of a religious ideology. Call it call them atheists. I don't care, but they're still a religion, <laughs> and they collapse in on themselves. You you see this in, in China right now. The Chinese Communist Party is losing the grip. Xi Jinping is no longer a communist. He's just simply a dictator, as is as is um, Kim Jong Un in in North Korea. So if you if you widen your understanding of what religion is. You can realize it's it's not just religion, it's ideology. Religion being one component of ideology, but um, but but a component we need to understand. They two interact, and you can have an ideology on top of an ideology. You can carry two ideologies in your head at the same time. Now, you can't carry, say, Catholicism and Islam in your head at the same time. But if the ideologies are, are complementary, you can do that. And that's what's going on with uh, was it Brenda talking about her brother with the guns? Uh, I can't remember who that was. There's two ideologies and they both melt and they're synergistic. They reinforce each other inside the brain of the, of the human being. Uh, does that answer the question a little bit there? Or, or yes, did I yes, get thank it? You. you know, that was, okay. uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Fascinating. Bruce, I think you had a question. You had a question before, and I think we well, skipped over, and now you're back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just, just in general, I started, I left the church like 40 years ago, but I didn't leave the religion. 
in my head until about 10 years ago. And it was through ex-Mormon Reddit and some of the things. Now, when I ex-Mormon Reddit, it was like 25,000 people. Now it's a quarter of a million. I I ran some gatherings for uh, people who've left high demand religions at the beach for about eight years. We'd have 100 people come, mostly Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Orthodox Jews, occasional Muslim. Have you seen with your recovery from religion similar growth to the calls and the need for support? Is is that growing the way I we've seen ex-Mormon Reddit grow? Yeah, yes, uh, we've seen a lot. But let me go back to what you, your first statement. And I think this is a good way to frame it. You can leave religion, but religion doesn't leave you. Yeah. And the reason for that is uh, early childhood indoctrination creates strong neurological pathways in our brain that are easily reinforced through ritual. So you can leave all you want, but the minute you see a cross, the minute you see a, a, a Muslim temple, I mean, a Mormon temple, it, that pathway gets triggered. So you have to be pretty intentional. One, you have to be very intentional about repatterning your brain. Or two, you just have to be out of it for long enough Yeah, before the my, triggers. Yeah, my situation, I, I was a gay missionary. I came back. I still went to BYU, graduated for three more years. I just didn't go to church because they didn't make you go to church in those days. And I right. had to do with the church, but I still believe the basic narrative of how the world worked. Until ex-Mormon read it and I started looking at things, I can remember where I was at. I was out in Riverside, California. I'd been out with our family's trust attorney, and I was listening to Jeremy Reynolds, who wrote this CES letter. And it just right. hit me, and I internalized. I'm going, it's all bullshit. And from that moment, <laughs> that was about 10 years ago, I have t- completely deconstructed stuff. And yeah, I I was just, I I believed the basic narrative, even though I knew the Mormon church was toxic for me, but it took another 30 years for me to get an understanding of how the world works. And now I'm looking to figure out how, how do I deal with the world and live for the last quarter of my life? Cause yeah, three quarters is gone already. Well, we get a lot of people contacting us and saying, I've wasted my life on this religion, whatever the religion was. And it's, it's a, and, a part of that is the anger over being lied to and tooled and abused and taken advantage of and basically robbed of part of your life. So we work with a lot of people. How do we how do we help you live the rest of your life in yeah, fulfillment? That's the question. That's, that's the question. We get a lot of those. Now, the we. We only deal with people who contact us. I'm not out there surveying and knocking on doors. I'm not sending the missionaries out. <laughs> but we have over, we've gone from, we started in 2009. And now we we have volu- over 400 volunteers that cover every time zone on the planet. We've literally got a volunteer in Moscow. We have a volunteer in Syrian refugee in Lebanon. That's our volunteer for us. A very good volunteer. Got volunteers in South Africa, Argentina, all the way over to Perth, Australia. And these people generally have come to us for help. And after they got the help, they decided, oh, I want to be a volunteer and pay and pay it forward or give it back, if you will. But 
we're seeing a huge growth in calls from people and volunteers coming into us because the word's getting out. People are saying, oh, I've, I've never heard of this place. And when they do, they, they maybe I'd, I need their services. We're seeing a pretty good sized jump. For example, just this morning, I, look, I, got, I got online and looked and I see a, an ex-Sikh from Malaysia. Now, I didn't know they had Sikhs in Malaysia. I thought that was only in India, but evidently not. And he's an atheist now, but he can't tell his family or parents because it's physically dangerous for him. And we're seeing a lot of ex-Muslims coming in from Morocco, from Algeria. Lots of people that we weren't seeing five five years ago, even, um, coming in from non-Western, non-Christian religion. So the word, it appears to me, the word is getting out um, about us, and there's some kind of change in their own culture. There's a lot of atheists in Iran. I'll just tell you, it's to me, it's amazing. As we speak, there is a there's a uh, scientist, a computer scientist. I can't say much more about him, who lives in Tehran, Iran, who is translating my book, Sex and God. Um, he's he's going to translate it in the next few months. I'm going to approve it, and I've got some other people who are going to read it and make sure the translation works. And then we're going to start publishing this in Iran. He says that there's a huge, a huge um, number of people on Iran who can't say they're they're out and can't read can't and they can't read anything because the the government controls reading materials. But they they've got ways to distribute books uh, electronically. So I'm looking forward to this because I have gotten so I don't know if you know this or if you follow anything I do, but I just had a a long hour and a half conversation to uh, Iran. I had a direct, uh, we did a Zoom <laughs> with Iran, which is illegal, by the way. And, but it was facilitated through some secret channels. And I was, I was talking while 2,500 people were watching this Zoom. And the, the fellow that runs the Zoom says about 80% of the people that watch their show are living inside of Iran right now. That is, that is mind boggling. I had no idea until about three weeks ago when I did this show. As a result of that, I go on there the other day and I look how many people have watched that show. And it's, it's coming close to 10,000 people have watched that show. I do a lot of podcasts. I mean, Rebecca and Landon and I just did one the other day. I, I don't think you're going to get 10,000 ex-Mormons watching that show. We might. We okay, might. well, I'll, I'll, I'll take my hat off to you if you do. So, I, Bruce, I, I, I don't have a scientific way to assess the movement, but I think there's huge shifts in global culture. It's, it's not just United States. It's not just Mormonism. I see global culture shifting as well as people start calling bullshit on on their religion. So that's a long answer there. Yeah, and no, no, no empirical data, I'm sorry to say. No, but you see it. You have this bird's eye view, you know, because you have all religions, all denominations coming to your organization, asking for help, trying to find a friendly ear, and then a lot of them turning around and becoming volunteers for you, which is yeah. just wonderful. And I think Landon just put the name again, Recovering from Religion, in the chat because, you know, middle of the night, you have a faith crisis, uh, nobody's up on ex-Mormon Reddit, you can go over to Dr. Ray's and, and they, you know, sometimes <laughs> I find it's refreshing sometimes even for Mormons to see, oh, Jehovah's Witnesses are just like us. I, for the first time, went over on their 
um, more, their Reddit subreddit the other day, a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, the titles of the different questions are the same. Uh, yeah. My parents found out, my mom turned on me, my child. I mean, they were the same scenarios. It's all high demand, all high control. All of us are in the same boat as far as what is happening to us. So to me, that's very comforting. So Landon, I think it, you had a question. It, it's comforting. And remember, there's uh, a billion two Muslims out there yeah. and there's they're exactly the same problem yeah. you have. Only they get their head chopped off in some countries. Well, are you or, worried for your safety at all, Dr. Ray? Because your book, Sex and God, is, I mean, that's off the charts. I have to feel like that's going to really make some waves, especially in that culture. Are you okay? <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not too worried. Uh, hey, okay. I've lived, I, I have this attitude. I've lived, I'm 73. I've lived a pretty damn good life. You know, yeah. something should happen. <laughs> You know, I've I've given my two cents to the culture. Uh, if they don't want, wow. to, yeah. Yes, I've, you have. You've made a huge difference <laughs> for a lot of people. Landon, what's your question? Yeah, I just uh, to kind of finish up. I know uh, that it's important to you about uh, how you have discussions with other people about these ideas. And just after we talked last week, my son actually got a text from someone at school uh, where he was. Uh, uh, you know, the guy started just chatting up, chatting him up. He didn't know him that well. And he's, how are you doing all that? And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, haven't seen you at church. How, how, how do you stand with God right now? And I was able to use some of the information you gave me. And I, I just said, he, he said, what do I say, dad? And I said, just tell him that you're really enjoying navigating uh, life on your own terms. Uh, yeah. and, and that's that's where he left it. And so uh, could you just talk a little bit about your philosophy on that. I thought that was really uh, a strong point. Sure. And the last few chapters of the book, I, I go into that in some depth. And I have not really changed my attitude, uh, my philosophy at all since writing the book. And I've taken that philosophy and I've tried to implement the philosophy in the training of our volunteers that recover from religion. Uh, by the way, I'm just the president. I don't do everything. I don't even begin to do everything. I got 400 volunteers doing great work. So I hardly have to, they do shit I don't even think about. So anyway, uh, but but implementation of that was this, and it's a simple philosophy. If you are, let's say your, your kid or your spouse comes down with a serious illness, a flu, you know, they're miserable, they can't do anything for themselves. You would have compassion upon that child or your spouse or that person you're in need of care you would have compassion for them you wouldn't say well you idiot why'd you get that virus you know that's not the attitude you would take and i have the same attitude about ideologies people get infected with ideologies they didn't ask to be infected any more than i asked to be infected with a covid virus i am now infected with a christian virus or a mormon virus or a muslim virus I, in most cases, people got infected when they were little. Their parents gave them the damn virus, the, the, the quote, disease of that particular religion. So telling people how, and, I, and I've seen this way too often within the secular community, especially within the hardcore atheist communities, is they're, they're hardcore in the sense that they tell people, how could you be so stupid to believe all that stuff? And ironically, some of it is from people who themselves believe that stuff 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So they're not taking a bigger picture 
understand this person is infected. This person is being was forced in, in, into this religion. It wasn't voluntary. You didn't. No one wakes up at five years old and says, "Hey, mom, dad, why aren't you teaching me Buddhism? Why aren't you teaching me Islam?" Nobody does that because that's the only thing your parents know. It's the only thing you know. So I find that if you, you approach religious people with the attitude of compassion, and I don't mean looking down on them. That's that is not that's exactly the wrong thing to do. But if you approach them with compassion, recognizing that they are sick, just like you would a sick in the sense of they they have a God virus they didn't ask for, just like your child has COVID-19, they didn't ask for it. Uh, then you're much more likely to uh, create a, a relationship that feels safe to them and, and gives them the opportunity to explore. So in responding to that person, Landon, um, if your son responded in that way, that's a compassionate way. It's not saying I'm better than you or you're lower than me. It's saying I have my own life to live and here's what I'm doing with it. That can be a really powerful message to somebody who's never thought about outside the bubble. And, and let me, I think I told you guys this notion of a, a crack in the cosmic egg. I, I talked about that with Landon and Rebecca the other day. If you think of a ideology as a cosmic egg, the ideology says, this is how the entire universe works. This is the cosmos around, around you. And the, the Mormon cosmos or the Catholic cosmos. And if, if, if you can find a way to crack that cosmos egg open, the cosmic egg, and look outside the egg, you'll find out, whoa, there's a whole nother world out there. There's in fact, but it's also an egg. <laughs> there's a bigger egg. It's like an onion. Uh, so you keep cracking the egg. And every time you crack the egg and look outside, there's more things to learn. There's more things to do. There's more people to interact with. And if you take the world compassionately in, in the way that I'm, I'm describing right now, you're much more likely to actually change people's minds. I, I, we train our volunteers very carefully. Your job is not to convert or deconvert anybody. That is not your job. Your job is to ask good questions. Not leading questions, but good questions, helping them explore their own view of the cosmos, the world around you. And in asking good questions, you'll get a person thinking, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And, and then they a little crack takes open. And it may take years for that crack to get wide enough for them to step outside and look. But that's what we're all about, being kind, being compassionate with people is is my philosophy uh, is that answer is that address at landon yeah absolutely and that that's uh it, it's it's just so you know sometimes because you're angry or you're mad it's easy to shoot back with uh well here's the problem here's the problem here's the problem why can't yeah. you see that and and oh. you know this is such a, a so much better way of, and of most of us have many many believing family members and so we're we're in that soup with all the believing people and yeah that's a yeah. very good strategy 
Melissa, uh, I just noted your chat and you are 1000% right. Because <laughs> we, we don't train our volunteers in street epistemology, but what we do is we recommend they go learn it. We, we've got basic training we give you and then you can go get a, advanced training. Uh, and do you know, Anth Melissa, uh, Melissa, do you know Anthony Magnabosco? I wish. Uh, no, I'm just taking a street epistemology class with uh, my local atheist community. Okay, good. Well, Anthony is a very good close friend of mine. And he's also the single longest serving recovering from religion volunteer. If, if you volunteered for RFR, you have to go through an interview process. And Anthony is one of our three volunteers that do the interviews. So you could get Anthony uh, as a volunteer. I have a friend that is one. She does your uh, one local for here, uh, Cheryl oh. Figueroa. And so, you know, she's always at the street epistemology classes. I just find it so useful to help people think about why they come up with the belief systems they have and to, you know, the importance of not doing it to change minds or convert people, but just say, hey, let's look at how you've arrived at this and just kind of help them think through their own belief system. I just find it to be fascinating because people get so defensive about their own belief systems and just yeah. helping them kind of think things through in a non-confrontational way is so helpful. Even if you if you get somebody on the defensive, you've lost you've lost the battle. Period. So for example, as a psychologist, when somebody walks into my office, they don't know who I am. They don't know what hidden agendas I might have or anything. So I have to set them at ease. I have to help them realize I'm not a threat to you, that I'm I'm somebody you can be comfortable around and tell me whatever's on your mind, because we ain't going to help you if, if you don't tell me anything. And that's kind of the attitude you should take with street epistemology. You are a safe person. You're low key. You're not going to get upset. You're not going to push your own ideology on somebody else. And once a person realizes that you are a safe person, oh, this just happened literally again this morning. One person got on here and said, I feel my my wife and I were at a family um, gathering. The, the man, the man in this relationship is secular and most of his family is, but his wife is deeply Jehovah's Witness. That's uh, still in, in the religion. Uh, he, I think he's Pima. He still goes to church with her, but anyway. He said in the chat this morning that his wife told him after their little family party, I feel more comfortable and safe around your secular friends and, and family than I do in my own church. I think I prefer to start seeing only secular people in the future. Those were her words to him. And of course, I'm just looking at the chat. But that is the quality of safety and compassion that you want to build that somebody will say, I feel safer around you than I do around my own family. Or, I certainly don't feel safe in my church. Her words were, I feel judged no matter what I do in my church. And I've heard so many Mormons tell me, I feel judged no matter what I do. I'm never good enough. That's, that's what we call uh, sacred profession, uh, perfectionism. Perfectionism is the bane of all religious ideologies. Every religion says you're not good enough. And why do they do that? Because they want you to keep trying to be good enough, even though you'll never get there. And that keeps you in the church. Yeah, I love that. And it makes me think of missionaries because I, I think some people feel like, oh, if they come to my door, I got to just let them have it. You know, you're in a cult. 
that doesn't work. You should really just be kind. You know, mm -hmm. you should be a kind voice because yeah. they're probably not experiencing kindness anywhere else or even in the mission, you know, with the mission home and the president, they're probably having a hard time. So I agree. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So let me, let me say a word about missionaries because there's really, a, there's a psychos psychosocial reason for mission work. And this is part of the genius of Brigham Young and, and Joseph Smith, probably more big Brigham Young in this sense. You are not sending Mormons are not sending missionaries out to convert people and bring them back to the religion. That is a byproduct. That is not the main function. That's not what they say, of course. They train you in how to talk to people. They train you in how to bring people back to Mormonism or into Mormonism. But that is not the primary function. The primary function of mission work, not just in uh, Mormonism, but the same thing is true in, in um, Scientology and the same thing is true in Jehovah's Witnesses and other religions. Those are just three that come to mind. The primary is cognitive dissonance to, for, to get you to go out and experience the hostility of the world to Mormonism, which then reinforces the neural pathways of the Mormon ideology in your mind. And then when you come back, you will be more devoted to, to Mormonism than you were before. It, it really it really drives the ideology into the brain much, much deeper. I don't know how many people have told me I went out, Mormons told me I went out on a mission. I don't think I saw, saved a single person. I only, after two years of work, I can only point to two people that became Mormons. So then that, that proves right there that that's not the purpose. The purpose is to finish the indoctrination process. And since men are the primary uh, components of Mormon patriarchal society, they're the ones that have to go out there because you want to grab them and force them to adhere to this ideology most. Because once you've got the men, then you can get the women because the women will be subject to the, you know. Uh, the interesting thing was, of course, that recently Mormonism has start, started allowing women to go on mission work, but it's not a requirement of, of women. Am I correct? So, you know, the, the the religion's evolving, as we as we've already said in many many ways already. So yeah, anyway, I, an I just I just wanted to make sure that you knew that what the real purpose of Mormonism, <laughs> and then the cognitive dissonance part comes in that even if I see a crack in the egg as a missionary, I went out spent two years, I came back, ten years later, I start questioning or I start having questions then you have to resolve that dissonance. Here's what the church says. Here's what I'm thinking the, the real world works like. And you've got this, this tension in your brain, and that's what we call cognitive dissonance. And that dissonance has to get resolved or you're uncomfortable, even, even stressed. And in resolving it, you say, well, how can I throw two years of my life away for something so stupid or, or something like Mormonism so you resolve it in favor of staying within within the religion. Cognitive dissonance plays a huge role in keeping people in the religion. It's like throwing good money after bad. I wasted $10,000 on that car, so I'm going to put another 10,000 in it to keep it to repair it when I could have bought a whole new car for, you know, whatever the price was. I want to recommend a book called um it's called um When Prophecy Fails. It was written about 1955 or 56 by the one of the most famous social psychologists, 
Leon Festinger, you look him up. Uh, he he had the opportunity to study a cult, a high control cult, as it was getting started, and it was kind of a spaceship cult in Chicago. At he he got was able he was able to infiltrate the the cult with with uh, some of his students, graduate students, and they went in and they were secretly making observations of this cult. Well. He wrote the book, When Prophecy Fails, and then about a year after that, he was trying to figure out well, what's going on here, because when the prophecy failed, they didn't leave the religion. They got even stronger in that religion, that, that cult. So the failure of the prophecy actually fed into the strength. That cult exists today. It still exists. This is 1955. Two years later, Leon Festinger came up with the notion that we now know today as cognitive dissonance. And how do you resolve the dissonance between what the prophet said and what, what actually happened? And you resolve it in favor of the prophet. And so the prophet says, well, we've got to wait another 20 years or whatever. And that's how you resolve uh, the cognitive dissonance. Anyway, yeah. uh, I highly recommend the book. It, it's dated in the sense it's 1955 language. But you, when you read it, you'll think, well, damn, Joseph Smith did the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> when Joseph Smith got murdered, Brigham Young took it and ran with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. It's sunk cost, right? You put so much it's into just... it. Also, they put it yeah. back on you. It's your fault the prophecy didn't happen. We have a phrase now in Mormonism, a couple leaders have said, finding answers to these questions is not the solution, right? They flat out say it, you know? It's, so you can just go on and on. There's no answer. Don't even try to find an answer. Just throw that cognitive dissonance away and keep doing all the mindless tasks. And we know That's that right. works really well. That's so, right. well, we are so happy that you joined us today. And I will let everybody know, we've kind of alluded to it, that Landon and I had a longer conversation with Dr. Ray on Mormonition. We'll be putting that out, I think sometime next week, where we, we delve into some of this, what we've already said, and a lot of other things, which are wonderful. So um, just as we let you go, can you tell us one more time, how to find your organization, what we can do, you know, is there any way that we can help? I mean, just all about it. I think a lot of enough people do not understand or know about the wonderful work that you've been doing for your lifetime. It's incredible. Yeah, recoverforreligion.org. Uh, you can go there to get help. Uh, you can go there to hit the volunteer button if you want to uh, be directly involved with people calling and need, needing help. I also, uh, part of that is also something um, called the Secular Therapy Project. And it's a it's a project we started in 2012 to find therapists that won't send you back to church. It's a big problem in in Utah trying to find a trying to find a therapist that isn't already infected with Mormonism and wants to put you back. You know, Brigham Young University makes people sign some pretty crazy stuff before they can become a, a student there. And if you let's say you're a, a marriage and family therapist or you want to get a PhD in psychology at Brigham Young. You have to adhere to the really crazy sexual ideas of Mormonism, like, you know, don't masturbate. Right. Well, what college student, male or female, probably doesn't masturbate? Well, that's they're doing it. They're just they're just feeling guilty about it. So what we've done is we've created a listing of, of therapists. So you can find a therapist in, in Utah that will not send you back to church and won't shame you for being gay or, you know, whatever else, whatever other sexuality issues that might be a problem. Or concern to you, not a problem. It's a concern. Uh, so recover from religion. Uh, you can 
contact us directly. I, my email is Daryl at Recovering from Religion, D-A-R-R-E-L. If you got further questions, I'll try to answer them. And uh, every Monday evening, we have uh, a Zoom just like this with anywhere from 50 to 100 people chiming in like this and listening to a good speaker on a wide range of topics. We've had Mormons. We've had Joe's Witnesses. We've had um, astronomers. We've had biological evolutionists. We've, we get all sorts of really interesting talks on Monday evening at 7 o'clock Central Time, which would be uh, I guess 6 o'clock your time. You can tune in on that. Uh, also, we have a secret um, a secret group in, in the Slack channel. Uh, Slack is the application we use for our organization, and it's highly protected. But if you are, if you want to talk to other Mormons, if you want to see what other Jehovah's Witnesses got to say, you can you can come to hit the chat button on our main main page. Just go to the recoveringfromreligion.org, hit the chat button. Or you can call in. We can take a phone call from anywhere on the planet. And you can talk to a human being about whatever is concerning to you. And then if you want, you can ask to be admitted to our secret chat channel. And you come in and you'll find that we've got a whole bunch. We've got ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, got ex-Mormons. And these, these are like Reddit, only that's highly moderated. There, there's no trolls in there. If there's a troll, they'll get kicked out in a heartbeat. Highly protected. We've got issues around sexuality. We, we got LGBTQ groups, you name it. We've got everything you want to talk about to someone else. And you can, you know, uh, pour your heart out to these people and they'll listen to you and they'll respond in a kind and compassionate way and help you explore your own world, where you want to go with your life. So yeah. thanks for asking uh, there, Rebecca. I appreciate you uh, letting me say that. Oh, yeah. No, it's such a great resource. And ever since we discovered you, I've just been trying to always mention it wherever I can. Um, if you yourself feel like, oh, I'm okay, I don't need that, but you can think of others that might, you know, this is this is an amazing organization. So, and even, you know, think about maybe volunteering to help because once you've been through it, you can talk to other people and make a huge difference. So, all we'll be right. Doing our big, we'll be doing our big fundraiser in uh, in April. So, oh, we, April. every year we have one big fundraiser. So, of course- okay. We need donations, so if you're so inclined, please, yep. uh, you can just go and donate now. You don't have to wait for the fundraiser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, let us know some more details about the fundraiser because we would love to get the word out too, just through our channels that we have, you know, because okay. anything that, that does that is great. So, all right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ray. That's amazing. We're just now going to talk about the next book uh, that we're reading. Have you ever read this book, Dr. Ray? <laughs> well, if you look at the back, uh, this is my book, Sex, Sex and God. If you turn it around and look at the second endorsement on the back, it's Christopher Ryan who wrote that book. Oh, my gosh. I should have known you guys are all connected. <laughs> <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> he, I loved his book. His book came out before mine did, and uh, he, I, I loved it. So I wrote him and said, hey, would you endorse my book? Yeah. Just like that, he endorsed it. He oh, was, my gosh. We should have yeah, known there really was a connection. This is great. So, yeah. Well, thank yep. you, Dr. Ray. We You're appreciate welcome. it so much. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. And you. thank you thank so you. much. Bye-bye. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Okay, next book, Sex at Dawn. And we're going to have discussion leader Shauna give us a little preview. We've already had an endorsement from Dr. Ray. So I think we're going to be in for a treat. Okay. Oh, hold on just a second. Mm. 
You talk, Shauna, and I'll move my oh, mouth, okay. and it will look like. Hold on for a second. <laughs> Here we go. There you go. <laughs> okay, so I took this from a summary on the website Bookie. Uh, so, because anyway, it doesn't matter. Sex at Dawn: The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality by Christopher Ryan and Sakilda Jetha challenges conventional wisdom about human sexuality and offers a provocative alternative perspective. The authors argue against the prevailing belief that humans are inherently monogamous creatures. They propose that monogamy as both a societal and evolutionary construct is a relatively recent development and not necessarily aligned with our biological nature. The authors delve into the ancestral origins of human sexuality, exploring how our closest relatives, such as bonobos and chimpanzees, demonstrate a more sexually open and non-monogamous behavior. By the way, there's a whole lot of bonobos in this book. Sex at Dawn suggests that the advent of agriculture and the institution of private property played a pivotal role in shaping our modern conception of monogamy. The authors argue that the shift from a nomadic egalitarian existence to a settled hierarchical society led to the emergence of possessiveness, jealousy, and the need to control sexual behavior. Sex at Dawn challenges deeply ingrained cultural norms surrounding sexuality, monogamy, and marriage. It calls into question the societal pressures to conform to a monogamous ideal that may not align with our biological disposition. The book has generated controversy and sparked discussion among both scholars and the general public. Critics postulate that the author's argument is overly simplistic or flawed and claim that they cherry pick evidence to support their perspective. We will discuss both the premise put forth in the book, premises put forth in the book as well as investigate the controversies surrounding their arguments next month. There it is. No, that sounds amazing. I'm glad we're going to also delve into, you know, how do critics receive this and what do we think? And I'm also glad that you're very brave to take this book, right? <laughs> Not everybody wants to talk about it. So it's going to be great. No, it's going to be good. I'm telling you, this is going to be a great <laughs> one. So, All right. Let's zoom through our other slides really quick here. Um, so we were going to mention, as we mentioned before, that all of our book club meetings are, you know, recorded and put up on YouTube. You can go to the Good Book Club for Post-Mormons and you can look at our past episodes. And also you can find the Good Book Club podcast anywhere you find your podcast. So if you've missed a session or didn't join us until recently, we have quite a few going back and they're just as good as the one today. Just really interesting. Everybody's so super smart. I love it. Um, another thing we'd like to make you aware of, we do also curate something called the Good Media Club. That's just kind of a Facebook page where we put up um, things in the media, like a documentary or a movie or something that has maybe some kind of um, shout out to Mormonism or an influence from Mormonism. Like most recently, I think we put up, there's a Hulu documentary called Daughters of the Cult, which is about the LeBaron cult. So that's interesting because that has to do with Mormonism for sure. So check that one out. Um, let's see what else. Mormonish podcast, which is kind of a spinoff from the Good Book Club that Landon and I 
co-host together and we have all kinds of guests, a lot of them connected to book club. Like we're going to have Lisa on and we had Dr. Ray on. So you can find that on YouTube and also on anywhere that you can find your audio podcasts, Mormonish podcast. Um, if you want to reach out to us, if you maybe just came here for the first time and want to know how to connect, you can send me an email at thegoodbookclub at mail, not gmail.com. You can also just go to Facebook, look for that logo there, search The Good Book Club, and you can request to join. And that's where we kind of talk amongst ourselves about the book, share links, share information about the book in the month, all that kind of stuff. So we're also on Instagram. You can find us there too. And if you do send me an email to that email address, my response usually goes to spam for some reason. So make sure that you check your spam if you reach out and we'll tell you how you can get more connected. So that will end this portion of our meeting.